from the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are... Ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice! Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice, boy, your friends, fun and party. Not bad. amazing. Want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life... Attention, keyboard shoppers. ...in your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Beetlejuice. 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 Second in our series on sandworms. How do sandworms fit into Beetlejuice? We'll get to that. But first, let's chat a little bit about what we've been up to. I love Sex in the City. It's my guilty pleasure. I've seen every episode and I did just finish and just like that. And I got to tell you, yes, I love it. I don't care what anybody else says about it. I love it. It just gave me all the Sex in the City warm fuzzies. I did miss Samantha, but she made her decision. So. so I think Sex in the City has great writing, but I stopped watching it part way through. I'm like somewhere in the middle of the original series. I'm a fan because I, I don't know if I told this story on this podcast before, but when I was five years old, I was in violin school. Have I told told you guys this story before? I, no. No. <laughs> It was the Suzuki School of Violin. And the Suzuki School, for those who don't know, is based on Zen archery. It's like this Japanese method of teaching music that is insane and no child should be subjected to. Oh, I I subjected Finn for five years. So, oh, so I, I know the parenting side of this, which is all about like love and like you have to show your child how much you love them even as you like force them to practice every day and don't feed them if they don't practice like that kind of yeah so <laughs> those who didn't go back and listen to starship troopers the previous episode where we talk about the treaties <laughs> on discipline right <laughs> zen archers like ninjas and stuff like that, they had to practice forever with the bow before they were allowed to pick up an arrow. It's the same concept brought to violin, right? So you got to practice with the box before you're allowed to pick up the bow or whatever. It's terrible. Anyway, I showed some promise as a young violinist and I was in the newspaper of the town that I lived in. It was the Cincinnati Inquirer. And I was actually on the front page in a tiny little blurb there is like a photo and like C page, whatever arts and leisure section, you know, and it was all about the Suzuki school. But then the older girl who was like two years older than me, who I think I had a crush on at the time was this redhead and her name was Sarah. And Sarah 
was really good too. She didn't get the front page I did, but she was featured on the inside of this newspaper article. I think I still have the article. And Sarah, Sarah was there for a little while, but Sarah Parker was very gifted and she eventually got the role in this Broadway production of Annie or something. And then she left and we never saw her again. <laughs> you know, Sarah Parker better as Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, no way. <laughs> yes, it's true. She's a Cincinnatian. Yes, ma'am. So, yeah, she was in my violin school. I had a crush on her when I was like five. So, of course, I'm a Sex in the City fan, right? My son spent most of the last week trying to persuade me to let him watch The Silence of the Lambs. So my son's 12. It's terrifying. It's, yeah. And after week, you know, and he was going on about, you know, like, I want to see all of the greatest films of all time. And this keeps making the list is like one of the great ones. It won five Oscars, which suddenly is something my 12 year old cares about. And <laughs> and I said, OK, so I'm just going to give you a brief rundown of the plot of Silence of the Lambs. And then you can tell me if you are ready to watch this. And I think. I don't know what was in his little 12 year old head of what he, I think he thought it was a horror film about killing lambs. Like, (laughs) I think think that's what was in his head. And so when I explained to him what the film was really about, he was like, oh, uh." (laughs) and so that just means he's got to wait. He's got it. So, so we, I'm just, I'm announcing on, on our broadcast that I made a good parenting decision this week. After five, ye- after five years of Suzuki school, like I don't think you've, you've got a lot more to atone for. Yeah, I tried to get my kid to play violin once. Didn't work. It was like, my, my kid was too headstrong for that. And, and they were just like, nope. I am not standing a certain way. I am not placing my hands on this violin a certain way. I'll do it this way. And then suddenly it was, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was like, I kind of don't blame you. So we moved on. (laughs) For Finn, it was a fear of public performance. And that is a requirement in the Suzuki curriculum is like regular recitals, like every, you know, two or three months and the poor, the poor kid. And so um, what stopped it was the pandemic, actually, (laughs) like saved by yet another good outcome of the pandemic. (laughs) Child rescued from the Suzuki method. (laughs) I watched Hercules in the Haunted World. So Hercules, a series of mediocre to bad Italian films about the mythological hero. But there was one installment, three or four movies in, that they switched from um, the original Hercules, uh, Steve Reeves, the bodybuilder who inspired Lou Ferrigno, to Reg Park, the bodybuilder who mentored Arnold Schwarzenegger. This film was directed by Mario Bava, who's a really great Italian horror director. He was tapped to direct one installment of Hercules. And in this one, it's called Hercules in the Haunted World. It's got other titles. It's also known as like Hercules in the Underworld. It's basically he goes to Pluto's realm of the dead. Interestingly, ruled by Christopher Lee. So it's got Christopher Lee in it. And Mario Bava showed a lot of early promise. So it's got some very surreal uh, scenes and expressionist lighting and stuff like that. So it's a really 
different one in the Hercules genre. That sword and sandal genre is known as the peplum genre. Well, this inspired a subgenre of the peplum genre, which was horror peplum. <laughs> uh, it was a little fad in the 60s for a little while there, 50s or 60s. The strange mashup kind of uses horror tropes, but in a more action comedic way, you know, which might sort of tie into something we're talking about today. A movie that was uh, originally called House of Ghosts and then later Scared Sheetless. Mm. <laughs> that was a joke, though. Like, Tim Burton proposed that title as a joke, and then they were like, yeah, that's got a nice ring to it. And he was like, oh, God. <laughs> People not understanding satire. Right. <laughs> Let's jump into the background for 1988, and I'm just going to give a really brief overview. Because this film came out fairly early in 88. So January 7th and 8th in the Afghan war, 39 men of the Soviet Airborne, 345th, fight off an attack by 200 to 250 Mujahideen. This is dramatized in the film The Ninth Company. February 13th, the... 1988 Winter Olympics kickoff in Calgary, Alberta. March 1st, in all supermarkets, the weekly world news tabloid headline, how to tell if you are possessed and what to do about <laughs> it if you are. <laughs> yes. March 12th, 1988. Never gonna give you up, reached number one in the American Billboard Hot 100. The single... <laughs> Top the charts in 25 countries worldwide. ASCAP will not let us rickroll, you guys, so don't worry about it. <laughs> March 16th, the Iran-Contra affair. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and Vice Admiral John Poindexter are indicted on charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States. And then March 30th, Beetlejuice is released. So... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the background to this one, Johanna? Sure. So this was Tim Burton's second major feature after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was a feature film that he earned after some of his shorts made it into the hands of the creators behind the stage show of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There was an HBO special. They decided to make a feature and Tim Burton was the guy. So Pee-wee's Big Adventure being Tim Burton's freshman feature, Beetlejuice, sophomore feature. And you can already see a lot of development in the time in between of Tim Burton finding a style. A little background on Tim Burton. I was really hoping that I was going to have like 10 minutes worth of material about what a weird childhood he must have had in order to become the person <laughs> he is. But unfortunately, like, it seems like he's actually a pretty typical, like, Hollywood person. You know, he made stop motion animation films in his backyard as a kid. And then he went to film school to study animation. And then he made some short films. Then he got a feature. And it's and it's just, just a sort of a pretty regular career story. The only thing of note is that his father was a minor league baseball player who then worked for the Burbank Parks and Rec Department. And his mom owned a cat-themed novelty shop. <laughs> so that's, that's, the, that's the only thing I could find that could explain Tim Burton. That and his love of B-sci-fi. 
which is all over the place in Beetlejuice. There's a clear look and feel of the stop motion animation that is intentionally not at the cutting edge of where it could have been for 1988. Instead, it recalls more like the land of the lost (laughs) in pretty much every way. And it kind of adds to the humor and the fun of the film. Originally, Beetlejuice was written to be more of a straight horror film where Beetlejuice and I I do I approve heartily that Burton changed this around. Beetlejuice originally was going to be a winged demon that was also like very clearly written in the script as a Middle Eastern man. And <laughs> they they decided maybe that was tasteless or or wrong, but also in this in the original script, Beetlejuice was much more bloodthirsty and much less of just kind of a harmless pervert the way he is in the film. I mean, harm, mostly harmless, but um, mostly harmless. Mo- mostly yeah. harmless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right, sidebar. All right, so mostly harmless brings up The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's a lot of sci-fi references throughout this, and I want to talk about the title Beetlejuice. So you and I and other people who are sci-fi fans, we know that Beetlejuice is a star. It's referenced in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, and it's spelled B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, right? In this film, Michael Keaton plays the character named Beetlejuice, and his name in an ad appears spelled that way, the correct way, B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, after the star. Now, were you going to talk about where it was shot? I was going to talk about East Corinth, Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Slash White River Junction. Like, I, I think White River claims some of the shots as well. Okay, so I live in Vermont, and I live one county over from where this was shot. So I was like, okay, I'm going to drive up there. So earlier this week, I drove up to East Corinth, and I was like, okay, I'm going to look at these sites. It's all gone. Time has not been kind to East Corinth. The covered bridge, Gone. The facade, even the house that it was a facade on, gone. The the Dietz's home, gone. A lot of houses are boarded up and things like that. But I went to the library, which is one of the buildings you see in the film. And while I was in the East Corinth, Vermont library, you know, I knew that it was a set. If you remember the lion out front and all that, none of that's actually there. The facade they put on this was actually to look like the library had originally looked. Anyway, they restored it back to ugly after they were done. (laughs) um, So I was in this East Corinth, Vermont library and I'm walking around, thought maybe I would do the show from there. You know, how cool would that be? But there really wasn't a suitable place for audio recording. So I see on top of one bookshelf, three picture frames and, you know, they're dusty and look like they're almost forgotten. And there's a bunch of black and white photos in each one. And they're labeled B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. And they're behind the scenes photos. There's photos of Gina Davis and there's photos of, you know, all all sorts of stuff going on. These black and white photos are sitting up on a shelf. And finally, the librarian, and I say that in quotes because they're actually volunteers. They don't have library science degrees, came by and I asked her about it. And I'm like, well, why is it spelled Beetlejuice, you know, and she's like, oh, well, we have, you know, and and she didn't know what I was talking about. And they have multiple copies of the DVD there. So I grabbed one and showed it to her. And I'm like, 
Beetlejuice, B-E-E-T-L-E-J-U-I-C-E. That's what it says on here. But why does that say, you know, and she was like, I thought she was as old as me, but she's like, oh, that was before my time. You know, I don't know. That was forever ago, you know, and <laughs> she didn't even understand what I was trying to say. So I said, like, the name of the star and it never occurred to me that she didn't know that Beetlejuice was a star. And so she's like, no, the star was Michael Keaton or the star is, uh, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm talking about why is it spelled that way? You know, and she didn't know. And so I was wondering if the, this film had ever been titled Beetlejuice, like, you know, spelled like the star. And maybe they thought that audiences were too stupid to know that or something. I don't know. I did see that the original title on IMDb is listed as Beetlejuice, two words, mm. B-E-E-T-L-E space J-U-I-C-E. I don't know. One little minor aside, as I was driving away, I was listening to a podcast interview about like Watergate, Nixon and all that that I've mentioned on the podcast. And the guest that they were talking to was Dick Cavett, which I found <laughs> highly amusing that 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 came on randomly on my phone after visiting this little town on the drive home. <laughs> Long sidebar, but there you go. Totally, totally worth it. And yeah, there uh, there were a lot of people who had no idea what Beetlejuice was, like no recognition that that referred to a star. I was born in 1988, so I think by the time this rolled around, like everyone had picked up the clue phone. And so that was something, you know, when I watched the film, it was the first thing my parents told me is like, did you know this, the name of a star? So, um, but the film got mixed reviews when it came out. Some people just didn't find it funny, just thought that it was playing for cheap laughs. But overall, the reception was pretty positive, And Tim Burton got a reputation for being able to turn around a hit film on a very small budget. So this led to his getting work in other beloved titles and many of them in collaboration with Danny Elfman, who did the fantastic score for this film. Just, I mean, the opening overture alone, it feels like it's setting you up for a Mozart level comic opera. The overture is bombastic and playful and everything you want it to be. And this was also one of Danny Elfman's first major works. He had done the score for Pee Wee Herman as well. Uh, and that was just because Tim Burton was an Oingo Boingo fan. And at the time, Oingo Boingo was just starting to transition from being like a 30-person ensemble chaos machine with like everyone banging on trash cans and whatnot to being like an actual reputable eight-person band. So it was around that time. But Burton was a fan of Oingo Boingo, and so he brought Elfman on. Elfman had no formal you know, degree in music. He had taken some classes in Cal arts and composing, you know, hadn't, hadn't grown up with the Suzuki method, for instance, but, <laughs> um, but he clearly managed to, to pick up the basics well enough to become one of the greatest cinematic composers doing basically all of Burton's films, except for, you know, four or five of them. And then going on to write the music for other geek classic favorites, like men in black Simpsons, just an amazing career. But Beetlejuice was one of his first hits and really cemented their collaborative relationship. What was kind of interesting is that the first couple leads came onto the project pretty quickly. Catherine O'Hara apparently was head over heels to jump into this project. But otherwise, a lot of 
people turned it down. They looked at the script and thought it was too weird. We almost had Sarah Jessica Parker in the role of Lydia, for instance. Molly Ringwald, also a close second. And Jennifer Connelly, which also would have been like Labyrinth Part 4 or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, probably um, why she didn't get the part. <laughs> I think Winona Ryder is like the quintessential 80s goth girl. She oh, yeah. was perfect for this. Speaking of Winona Ryder being perfect for this role, it actually apparently is something that really stuck with her. And in, you know, around 2015, they started thinking about a Beetlejuice sequel. I think at that point, it had already been successfully brought to Broadway. There was an animated television series that aired on the Cartoon Network, which I loved, loved Beetlejuice, the animated show. There are so many more sandworms in the animated TV show than there are in the film. We'll get to that later. But Winona Ryder was all game, like, yeah, I want to know what's going on with Lydia Dietz 27 years later. But uh, after working on the film for a couple of years, they shelved the sequel. So we'll see if it ever sees the light of day. I really hope it does. I want to say something about the casting real quick before we move on from that, which is that originally Tim Burton had wanted Sammy Davis Jr. for the part yes. of Beetlejuice. Now, oh, wow. just try to imagine that. That's... So strange. It's almost as strange as imagining Michael Keaton as Batman, but that happened. <laughs> Somehow he made it work, and he was one of my favorite Batman. Actually, I think he did a pretty good job at Batman too. But we'll we'll talk about that in a different uh, in a different episode. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. You'll have to just have some popcorn with this because we're doing a cocktail. And not just any cocktail, it's actually called Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. No, don't say it no! three times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. So he's gone again. Okay, um, so this this was a courtesy of Brian Gallagher's bartender of Bacchus Bar in Portland, Oregon. I'm totally pulling this directly out of Wine Enthusiast, uh, so you can look it up yourself online. According to bartender Brian Gallagos, this cocktail, aptly called Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, <clears throat> uh, was inspired by the diet of a beetle, namely fruit, leaves, and wood. That translated into using apple, basil, and rosemary to create a green hue and sports an edible beetle garnish that's supplied by Newport Jerky Company, which offers an array of preserved insects. A waft of smoke from charred rosemary adds a full-on spooky effect. So it takes rosemary sprig for charring, one and a half ounces of Calvados, it's an apple brandy, one ounce of apple cider, a half ounce of simple syrup, a half ounce of lemon juice, five to seven basil leaves, and a, the beetle from uh, Newport Jerky Company for garnish, which I will hardcore pass on that. 
For directions, carefully char rosemary with a match or lighter and place overturned martini glass over it as it smokes. In a cocktail shaker filled with ice, combine the next five ingredients, shake well, strain into a martini glass, garnish with the beetle if desired, and enjoy. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like a, a variation on a sidecar almost, like with the, the lemon and the brandy, but, you know, a little extra cider. Um, mm -hmm. Really nice autumnal drink. Yeah, but that's like reaching Gabby levels of complexity. Like you got to have a yeah. lighter and you got to have like this special brandy and like turn the glass upside down and smoke the inside of the glass. Oh, <laughs> this is clearly a first drink drink. Don't right. do not do this on your third. Yeah, yeah. This, this I would only make one round of this and then we're going cheap. We're like drinking Mad Dog 2020 after this or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into talking about this film. Why don't you kick us off, Johanna, because you're the only one that didn't see this in the theater. Ha <laughs> <laughs> So I think actually, I, I think I saw the animated cartoon first, because as you can imagine, the cartoon version doesn't have nearly as much, uh, I mean, like really raunchy sexual humor, which I have to say as an adult, I love it's it's great it's ridiculous it's over the top um it's exactly what I want it to be one of the things I really love is the opening portrayal of the two main characters how you become immediately endeared to Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis one of them says two weeks at home the perfect vacation and immediately you're like oh these poor sad yuppies <laughs> like i'm just like like i just like wanted to cuddle them i'm like oh you have no idea what's coming <laughs> alec baldwin looks so young i know yeah normally i think in a lot of these you know the male actors they they like dye their hair and they look basically the same over time gina davis looks the same alec baldwin does not look like that guy anymore <laughs> no he does not look like that guy anymore still handsome but definitely uh, a different version well, of Alec Baldwin. Also, I don't think Alec Baldwin can play that version of Alec Baldwin anymore. Alec Baldwin can now only be the um, Jack Donahue version of Alec Baldwin. The, the self-parody, like, 30 Rock, you know, guy. Yeah, yeah. that's the only Baldwin left. Um, Lost is the Baldwin in this film who's, like, such a good guy, he wouldn't even hurt a spider. You know, like, he rescues right. this, like, clearly possibly dangerous spider and is like, be free! <laughs> I think Alec Baldwin, you start with your Beetlejuice, you know, yuppie, you know, wouldn't hurt a fly type uh, Alec Baldwin. Then you get your Hunt for Red October, Jack Ryan kind of Alec Baldwin. And then you get your 30 Rock type uh, Alec Baldwin. Those are the three phases of Alec Baldwin. The three phases of Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> I can say the juror is somewhere in that turning point. Juror and obviously Glengarry Glen Ross. But like the juror, he's like super creepy, but still young, hot Alec Baldwin. Yeah, that I would put the juror and um, what was the other one you mentioned? Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. Glengarry. I would put those in the middle phase. That is middle Alec yes. Baldwin. That's the serious Alec Baldwin. <laughs> like the young happy alec baldwin the serious alec baldwin and then the parody of the serious alec baldwin those are your three like phases of yes. alec baldwin <laughs> so i watched this movie with my best friend mel and she was like alec baldwin is kind of giving me creepy 
Jeffrey Dahmer vibes with his look. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I have never put that together before, but I can totally see what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The boy next door thing. Like, yeah, like a little too on the nose. (laughs) A little too on the nose. He was just like, he's just like too pretty for reality. I like that they introduce those characters in such a perfect, simple way. And they do this with all of the other characters. Each character gets their own kind of perfect introduction. And with Lydia, you know, the line, my life is a dark room. One big dark room. It's <laughs> just, just perfect for every goth child who, who was my friend at lunch in high school. Oh, that was totally me in high school. That movie came out my freshman. Yes, that was us. My bedroom was literally in the basement at my parents' house and I had no windows. My room was literally a dark room. (laughs) I was going to say Stranger Things. Like to go back and to watch that and then to go back and watch Winona Ryder and see like her as the child and then her as the mom is like really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so this is where we get to introduce my new favorite segment, All Roads Lead to Gary Oldman. Oh, God. Which is, if we're going to talk about the three phases of Winona Ryder, we have, like, teen goth punk Winona Ryder, and then on the other end, we have Stranger Things mom Winona Ryder, and right in the middle, we have Mina Harker from Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. (laughs) But isn't that just really goth, uh, goth? Winona Ryder. I don't know. No, anyway. but she's like a young woman. She's like an independent woman who has a job and stuff. You know, she's it's a it's a new phase of. Winona I get Ryder. it. I get it. Okay. So- and, and on that movie, supposedly she and Keanu Reeves like really legit got married by a priest, and they still say that they were like married. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's true. In Bram Stoker's There's- Dracula, they they got actually yeah. married by mistake yeah, they- or by purpose. <laughs> they they got. They, they were actually married by some sort of a shaman or priest or whatever on the film. Like, he was real. And they're like, oh, wow, I guess we're really married. There's an interview. You can pull it up. Um, oh, that's very On funny. the internet that Keanu Reeves and, and Winona Ryder give about that, about that scene. And they're like, well, I guess we're kind of really married. <laughs> Didn't Johnny Depp at one point get a tattoo of Winona Forever yes. or something and, like, yeah, change it yeah, to Winona, Winona Forever? forever. <laughs> yep. Okay, back on target. So this movie, this young couple, they move to this town in supposed to be in Connecticut, really in Vermont. They pretty much die almost immediately in this film. Years pass and their house is sold to Catherine O'Hara's horrible family. And um, this is where this flips the traditional ghost story where the humans have to live in this house that's haunted by horrible ghosts. This is the ghosts have to live in a house that is inhabited by horrible humans. (laughs) I like the way the characters were introduced in the film, especially Catherine O'Hara's sassy gay best friend. Who's, you know, really a greedy little bastard, but whatever. (laughs) Ortho. Yes. Ortho. ortho. Yes. Who's also the Reverend in Heathers with Winona Ryder. But that's right. Right. The janitor. That basically says who Beetlejuice is was also the same guy who introduced, who mentioned who Large Marge was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Oh, is that the shark meter? (laughs) The first time they go to Juno's waiting room, they walk in and what do they stumble across? 
a surfer with a shark on his leg. So yep, that's right. We have full shark meter on this film. Yes, we do. Full shark meter. I love the portrayal of bureaucracy in in this film. And it's actually one of the things I want to talk about the film generally, that there's not a ton of plot. There's a very strong premise, as Eric described, about like ghosts trying to get rid of humans. But then a lot of the rest of it is world building and atmosphere. And mm. the waiting room is one of those places where like not a lot happens there. But it's very important to the film that we get to spend time in that space. And and likewise, like not a ton happens in like the sands of Saturn and all the other places that they end up in when they, you know, open a door and stumble outside. Like not a lot happens there, but it's just very important for the atmosphere of what the afterlife is like and kind of how lost they are and that the audience gets to feel kind of, you know, always on the back foot in in the story as well but that what is more important is this carnivalesque atmosphere mixed with the bureaucracy and like oh this reads like a vcr manual <laughs> like you know the mix of those two things the idea that the parents are so horrible like like <laughs> could she have worse parents she has like Principal Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then <laughs> the mom who forgot her son and went on vacation in, in Home Alone. In Home Alone. Like, yeah, that's that's her parents, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the sci-fi elements because apparently their outdoors of their house is now a portal to Saturn or something, and that's yeah. where we get sandworms. 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 So what did we think of the sandworms in this? And let's compare them to the brain bug. Which is scarier? The brain um, bug. Yeah, the brain bug. As an adult, the brain bug. I think as a child, I remember the sandworms being scary the first time I saw this film. You know, the, I mean, especially the fin. Like, there's a lot of buildup with, with the sandworms in this. The way there isn't quite with the brain bug. It's kind of more like... You go from zero to face vagina in five five minutes, but um, but with this, there's like good buildup of like, oh my gosh, this scary creature. It's got a fin. I what scared me the most about the sand the sandworm and Beetlejuice is that it opens up and then there's another head that comes out of that mouth and that opens up and then you know what I mean. That that's the thing that creeped me out. It's like nope, it's not done yet. It's not done being weird. And <laughs> that creepy. actually reminded me of Aliens, right? Yeah, where, where yes, you got right. the he head and then like the mouth and then it opens up and then there's another one inside. Yeah. <laughs> right when you thought the horror was over, there's more. <laughs> I mentioned Dick Cavett earlier. You know, we're talking a true veteran who's been around for a long, long time by the time he made this. And supposedly in the um, the Deo banana boat saw scene, mm -hmm. they have the seafood platter and the shrimp are supposed to jump up and attack them, right? And, like <laughs> yeah. fly at their face. And like they were trying to have like stage hands underneath the table, like throw the shrimp at their faces and it just wasn't working and dick cavett says to tim burton why don't we just have them on our face to begin with let them like drop off and run the film in reverse like this is an old school technique going all the way back to charlie chaplin and stuff like that and that's mm -hmm. of course what they ended up doing <laughs> i i like when that's when they're in the hand i mean like the hand yeah. attaching to their face is really frightening like 
And I, th- I think some of it is the escalation of what the ghosts are capable of is really well done. That, you know, it starts off like they're able to manipulate themselves. And then, you know, like, oh, they're able to possess one person. And like, oh, nope, they got control of the whole table now. Everyone's dancing. And then they also, like, the food is going to attack everybody. It's like just levels of one-upmanship. Well, I, I like how terrible at being ghosts they are. Like, in the beginning, they're like, he's like, your mom's going to kill you when she finds out she's you've cut holes in her designer sheets, you know? Because <laughs> they thought, like, you know, that a ghost is like, you know, a, a sheet. And then they did this, and they're like, yeah, ha, 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 we got them. And then, like, they want you to come down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then after the dinner party, when they're leaving, like, Dick Cavett acts like he doesn't even believe that all this stuff really happened, and he's like, yeah, you're just washed up and just left, you know? <laughs> Like, okay, you just experienced all this and now you're acting like it didn't happen. Makes sense. We got to keep things moving here. So I think we need to talk about Michael Keaton because this is the Michael Keaton show. He did some stuff before this that was good, but this put him on the map. He will always be remembered for Beetlejuice. Mm -hmm. I think this is like his crowning achievement. You know, this is the, the role that everybody thinks of when they think of him. Apparently, he had very little direction and came up with most of this character on his own, right? Yeah, it's a lot of ad-libbing, and I think they let him lean into his strengths with this, for sure. Yeah, I think the direction he was given by Tim Burton, if I recall, was something like, Beetlejuice exists in all times and in no time. That was it. And he took it and he came up with the ideas like he went to the makeup department and came up with the ideas for what he wanted them to do with his hair and the teeth and all of that. And like he came on set and everyone went wild when they saw it for the first time. And so he that just amped him up and he just played this completely over the top character, which is really great and awesome and super unique. I can't think of any other movie character like it. You know, he's just like one of a kind. Well, and he plays side characters like this all over the place. But, you know, actually thinking about it, this is really the first, I mean, there was Night Shift and Mr. Mom. And in, you know, Night Shift, I think he goes off the rails to this level. Mr. Mom is also, side note, wonderful Keaton performance, great quotable film, but it's not like Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is the film where you get to see all of the sides of Michael Keaton that in these other films, like there will be an isolated moment. Like thinking about the original Batman, there's that one scene where he's like, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. And like, that's the (laughs) only like Beetlejuice-like moment that we have in that film. Otherwise, you know, Keaton does a great job as a character, but he doesn't go off the rails the way he does in this film. And I'm actually having trouble thinking of actors like other than Jim Carrey, like who really just or Will Ferrell, like other comedians who really go at it. But Keaton succeeds at doing it also like Jim Carrey, like he can be raunchy and gross, too. Yeah, he's not afraid to go there if he has to. And he's just really good at it. He's so funny. I love what he did with that character. I love the look that he created with the makeup team. He just really made that film. And every time I watch it and I see him, I just laugh so hard. I love him so much. I love the scene where he goes to the whorehouse, the miniature whorehouse (laughs) in their town, where they're like, I didn't build that. (laughs) 
I got something about that scene too. They later throw in a line where Juno claims that, you know, she came up with that idea to get him out of the way. She's like, yeah, that was me. (laughs) Right before that, someone tries to pick him up and he sprouts all these horns that cause them to drop him, right? Right. Yeah. And then he says, in the version that I had anyway, he's like, oh, I'm feeling kind of excited or something like that. And then he sees the whorehouse, you know? I swear to God, why wasn't that line, and it probably originally was, horny, right? Because he's got all these horns sticking out of him. I'm like, I bet that was the original line, and someone said, no, we can't have that line. Yeah, yeah, we're not using that. (laughs) Ratings. Now, I have no proof of this, and I have not seen any evidence of it. If anyone knows of it, please write in. But I'm guessing that line was supposed to be, I'm feeling kind of horny. Because he's got horns sticking out of him everywhere. Like, Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> I mean, the line was so there, they should have just let him say it. Not to mention that all the prostitutes are like demon prostitutes, and they also have horns. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was too on the nose at that point. They they were like, uh, no, now this feels dumb. <laughs> we gotta we gotta pull back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Am I the only one that noticed that despite his reputation, Beetlejuice is the only one that keeps his word? When they like release him like to save Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin's character, he actually does that. Mm-hmm. Then he's supposed to marry Winona Ryder's character, Lydia Dietz, and they all conspire to make sure that doesn't happen. Like, he's the one that kept his word, right? That's true. So, counter-argument. Okay. Counter-argument. She's not of age, so whatever promise she makes doesn't count. Like, she's... He's an extra-dimensional demon. He doesn't have an age. Well, no, but... <laughs> but they, you know, of course they're, they're going to stop her from fulfilling that promise. And secondly, like... The guy could have helped them out of the goodness of his heart, you know, and I think... Wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) The goodness of Beetlejuice's heart. Okay, think about that for a minute. (laughs) I just mean insofar as you're going to say that he has the moral high ground. No. (laughs) No. I did not say he had the moral high ground. I just said that he kept his side of the bargain, Mm. you know? He's too greasy to do anything without something in return. He's just too greasy for that. Greasy. (laughs) I'm just really glad that they changed... uh, Apparently in the original version, the script that the goal was that Lydia had to sleep with Beetlejuice. Like, it was very, like, you will have sex with me. <laughs> okay. And, and I'm glad they changed it to the more euphemistic, like, we're going to get married. Like, I am, it, it allowed it to be... Are you serious? Kind of that was originally... Bumper. Yeah, originally, like, it was like, I will save them if you have sex with me. And, and they changed it to marriage because I think it allows it to stay in this kind of, like, playful thing but then also it kind of makes more sense for her character about she wants to go to the underworld at some point like she wants to die and it's so that, fairy tale-ish right it's yeah. fairy tale-ish yeah mm-hmm. and it, it works a lot better than the the obvious place where your mind is going with the scenario anyway right right it kind of romanticizes well, your mind is going <laughs> not what? my mind i'm not going there i but what talks about having sex with people like every four minutes how is your mind not there (laughs) final thoughts thumbs up thumbs down what do you guys think of this film it will always and always and forever be thumbs up for me i love this movie it's one of my all-time favorites every time it's on tv i always watch it i love this film thumbs up forever i agree thumbs up but definitely on the conditions of really looking at it as one of Tim Burton's early 
just deep dives into what kind of style and what kind of films he wants to make. I don't feel like it holds together as neatly or is as emotionally impactful as some of Burton's other films, but in terms of style, production, creating a mood, really letting it out there, this is an excellent film for any Burton fan. I love this film. I think it's one of my all-time favorites. I've seen it many times. Definitely a thumbs-up film. Okay, I think that wraps it up for this episode. I want to remind you to like and subscribe, follow us on social media. In particular, we have a Facebook group called Geek Channel 8 Discussion Group, where we talk more about these things. If you want to contact us, you can email us at gc8podcast at gmail.com. That's letter G, letter C, number 8, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. And this is Johanna. Signing off. Shut up. Stop barking. Shut up.